Welcome to the Logically Faithful Show. This is Keldun Swice. I have with me on the line here a very special guest, Professor Robin Collins. Welcome. Um, thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> you are a professor of philosophy at Messiah, uh, Messiah College in Grantham, Pennsylvania, and you have been specializing in science and religion for what is it? A few couple decades now. Uh, yes. Wow. Okay. Well, you, you've written over 25 articles and book chapters and wide variety of topics on fine tuning and things of that nature. Original sin. 50, actually. 50. Wow. Now you keep yourself busy. I don't have time for anything else. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you did. You also contributed to two of my books um, Debating Christian Theism and Christian Apologetics and Anthology of Primary Sources on uh, the recent fine-tuning arguments by Anthropic Principle. And uh, you've done a lot of work with um, Cambridge University Press, Oxford Press, and others on the multi-universe hypothesis and um, naturalism and the, the laws of nature. And congratulations, a few years ago you got the award from the John Templeton Foundation uh, to do some work as well. Oh, yes, I did. Uh, how's the, how are things going on that? Um, they're moving along. It was it was more complicated and involved than I anticipated originally, but um, it's it's a very original and I think an important project. It's about how the um, the fundamental structure of the universe is not just fine tuned for um, life, but it's fine tuned for scientific discovery. So what I look at is varying the fundamental parameters and see what happens to our ability to discover the universe. And um, that's very important um, for one reason is that you can't explain that by a multiverse, so it avoids a multiverse objection. Well, this is good news uh, because we are, and as the goal and hypothesis of the, of the show here in Logically Faithful, is to help people see the evidence we have for our faith that will help ground us through dark times of life and give us uh, substantial reasons to believe more than just emotionalism or some kind of uh, shadowy, illusionary, or delusionary reasons that, or believing what we believe about life. Uh, you have substantially presented some significant arguments in science and scientific journals for the fine-tuning. Well, let's, let's dive into that. Um, can you give us a little bit of the motivation of why you do this, uh, Professor Collins? What is it that drives you on a deep level before we get into the actual uh, scientific work that you've done? Well, um, I, I originally, as an undergraduate, uh, uh, majored in um, physics and then um, added a mathematics major and eventually added a philosophy major because I was always interested in the intersection of um, physics and philosophy and then went on to graduate school in physics, but um, and ultimately I wanted to go into philosophy of religion. I had always a very strong sense of calling to do philosophy, mm. so that was always a driving um, force for me, even when hitting a bad, very bad job market. Um, and I had an extensive physics background, so I had the alternative of going into physics and I was very good at computers so and I lived in Washington State in the 80s so if I hadn't done the philosophy I'd probably be a millionaire now <laughs> doing the computers because it was the 80s when they were all you know the computer that's when everything was just breaking open with computers but so it really was this really strong sense of calling to do this and um, 
I wondered when I originally got into um, graduate school in the University of Notre Dame because I wanted to do philosophy and religion, why did they do all this physics? But then the physics turned out to be um, one of my greatest strengths, and so it was a natural combination of the two, and I always um, was interested in arguments for the existence of God and thought they were very important, so the two fit together when I found out about the fine-tuning, so mm. then I started researching it. Yes, you've won a dozen awards when you were um, even as a grad student and then further on as um, doing your doctoral work and your work. Um, you finally seem to be you're very fine-tuned for research yourself. <laughs> well, I, I always say God works in, in circuitous ways because I couldn't have anticipated this ahead of time why I even went to graduate school in physics. So. Let me ask you, has, um, how's this, how has your faith impacted uh, your research or the other way around? How has it impacted your belief and your, um, uh, your, your convictions? Well, I'm, I'm one of the kind of people, I think that, um, you know, God reaches me through my intellect, and it's really strengthened my conviction to a point where I, you know, am definitely convinced God exists, for instance, and it's helped me work through a lot of issues in my faith, because when I originally became a Christian, I had a lot of doubts, and I had all kinds of questions, so I really... The, needed to do philosophy to sort through them and then doing this fine-tuning research has given me a um, whole different um, perspective and particularly the work on um, the laws of nature so it's impacted me on a actually quite a deep level because like with the laws of nature and and the fine-tuning it seems to me pretty clear that um, every day is actually a miracle. It strikes me at a visceral level that it's a miracle that things work at all. Yeah. And, and so that I, I viscerally can feel the sort of God sustaining the world. It also connects with my work in philosophy of quantum mechanics. So all those areas have made me think that actually science offers the strong really strong support for theism, just the reverse of what a lot of people think. Fascinating. Well, let's get into some of that work that you've done. You start off with an analogy or a, metho um, a metaphor, if I may, of suppose we went on a mission to Mars, and then we find something there that is a life-sustaining environment, an atmosphere. Pick that up and go from there, unless, so we can build our reader up to exactly what the argument goes. So suppose we are on our mission to Mars. Right, and so if we find something that um, has a life-sustaining atmosphere, all these knobs to adjust it, and it's built, constructed just right in order for life to exist, um, the next day in the papers, what you would have is evidence, you know, uh, convincing proof of extraterrestrial life. No one would just simply say that it was a volcanic reaction, um, volcanic eruption, for instance, and just by chance everything um, condensed out into just the right form to um, this, for the structure to occur. So what science has found in the last 30 years or so is that the universe is analogous to that. Um, in many, many respects, the universe has to be set just right, um, what they call fine-tuned, mm -hmm. in order for life to exist, and particularly life um, of the kind I call embodied conscious agents, which require um, stable, reproducible complexity. 
Stable reproducible complexity. Fascinating. Uh, when you put that together that way, what is then the difference between this um, concept called the anthropic principle and fine tuning? Well, the anthropic principle, uh, there's various forms of the anthropic principle. So the anthropic principle is just simply says the universe has to be, the weak form says the universe has to be structured in just the right way, um, or we could be certain it is for life because we exist. So we couldn't find anything else but a universe structure just right for life. Um, but then they call that they call that structuring when it because it has to be finely adjusted. They call it anthropic fine tuning. Um, so um, it's the idea of anthropic is that word is used in many different ways in this context. Okay, I know uh, the anthropic principle has has universal support, does it not, in cosmology and in particularly your field in physics, that the universe does seem to be designed or specifically put together in such a way for the growth of these conscious agents, meaning us, it was made for us. Yeah, well, it has support in the sense that it seems to be extremely fine-tuned. Things have to be set just right for us to exist. So that has support. The other principle that it has to be structured so that we can exist, that's sort of a topology. Okay. That because we couldn't have existed otherwise. <laughs> exactly. That's one of the objections that's raised by my skeptic colleagues on that. Well, let's talk about this concept. So we're at Mars, or using the, the, the Earth, the planet Earth here, and we see these uh, fine-tuning variables and uh, principles here. Uh, one of the ones you give is the the Big Bang itself. The singularity seems to indicate a um, uh, ability or a, a fine-tuning nature to it that does lead support for an intelligent designer. Break that down within the initial um, constructs of the, uh, the, the singularity itself that indicate this fine-tuning model. Well, it's, it's uh, really the it's the energy is two things the distribution of mass energy at the beginning of the um, universe which it goes under the name of entropy mm -hmm. very low entropy and that is incredibly fine-tuned to like one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd power so that that is unimaginably um, uh, small number 10 to the 10 to the 123rd power we just give an illustration of how yes um, large of a number that is it would be like if you had a photocopying machine and you put a one on a piece of paper and then zeros everywhere else and you kept photocopying zeros and you filled the whole universe with that paper so there's only the sh one sheet with a one on it and the rest are zeros that number would be actually smaller than the number that's in that denominator, or the number 10 to the 10 to the 123rd power. So it's just incomprehensibly small number or an incomprehensibly high degree of fine-tuning. Um, and you wow. need that to have galaxies and things like that. Even your illustration is hard to put the mind, to grasp the mind around it. Right, it just, <laughs> you can't even... Um, Whatever illustration you come up with, it's a smaller number than that. <laughs> you give, you give, um, yeah, you give an example here in um, uh, the, the article you wrote for uh, Christian Apologetics the Anthology, uh, of Primary Sources. You said that John Jefferson Davis points out that the accuracy of one part in 10 to the 60th power, comparing to the Big Bang for initial explosion aspect, can be compared to firing a bullet at one inch target on the other side of the observable universe 20 billion light years away and hitting the target 
Um, right. So, so that, that's really, really small. You could do that comparison if you want. Um, I should say something about that article. That article was written in 1999. Right. So I have advanced. There's a, a lot more sophisticated and um, better versions of it out now that I've written. So give us then the uh, the syllogism, so to speak, for your thesis for the fine-tuning model and the, a lot of the work, the gist of the work you've been doing for the last decade or so. Um, how so, would you build the argument for what you're trying to say, specifically to a skeptical crowd, which some of my listeners are? Okay, so the idea is, is that, and this seems to be established scientific fact, is that the um, fundamental structure of the universe is has to be set in an extremely precise way for life to occur. I gave that one example of the entropy, but there's many more that have to do with like various um, cosmic parameters, like the, there's these density fluctuations, a, a slight difference in density in the matter in the universe after the Big Bang, and if that's um, too small galaxies don't form and hence we don't have planets and stars that can support life and if it's too large you get a black hole universe and you know, once again you don't get life and there's many examples like that um, so these have to be just finally adjusted that seems extremely improbable under what I call the naturalistic single universe hypothesis the idea that there's only one universe and it just by um, a chance that it has just the right values where we have to be extraordinarily lucky beyond what we could imagine. So extremely, that's extremely improbable under that. But it doesn't seem extremely improbable under theism as long as we can glimpse some reason why um, God would create a, a world that had embodied, what I call embodied conscious agents. And... I think we can. I think certain values are realized by embodied conscious agents, certain goods, and since God is perfectly good, that um, is that provides a reason why God would create. Is there certain goods to be realized? And embodied conscious agents can, for example, because of our embodiment and vulnerability to the environment and each other, we can exercise courage or self-sacrificial love. So it's really improbable under one hypothesis but not really improbable under another. Um, it's not the case it's improbable under another, and so it confirms the one in which it's not um, improbable or surprising. It's, it's analogy to how, um, let's say, if you found um, fingerprints on a gun, why that is evidence for guilt is under the hypothesis that the um, defendant is guilty, it's not improbable. But under the hypothesis that they're innocent, it's very improbable that they, the fingerprints on the gun would match. Um, you know, um, they have to be somebody with almost identical fingerprints that used the gun in order for them to match. So it's very improbable under one, but not improbable under the other. So it strongly supports the one in which it's not improbable under. Let's that makes sense. Let's put this into layman's terms then. When you say something is improbable at the level that you're speaking about, at the mathematical probabilities that are astronomically high, um, why then would some people, intelligent physicists, intelligent uh, people in your field of cosmologists or working under quantum theory, uh, those people, some of them deny outrightly that there is a specific designer for this. They look at the same evidence you're looking at and they see 
no hand behind it. Um, the, the, in Psalm 53.1 and Psalm 14.1, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Well, these seem to be the very intelligent fools. <laughs> uh, what, how do you make, what do you make sense of that? How could two... Well, one, two, one thing they yeah. go with multiverse hypothesis. Okay. So Let's talk about that. To physicists mm-hmm. and cosmologists, those that think about this, I've actually never met one that just simply accepts that this just all happened by chance that there's a single universe. What they do is they say there's a multiverse. There's many, many universes. And um, eventually, just by chance, if there's enough universes, one will uh, rise that has just the right combination of fundamental parameters and right structure for life to exist. And then once life evolves in that universe, we'll look back and say, aren't we lucky? Uh, That's Peter Singer then. Um, yeah, a lot of physicists hold this. It, oh, Victor Singer, like, sorry. Victor Singer, yeah. Singer. A, a good analogy for this would be um, uh, the, uh, that is often used is uh, the fact that our planet is just right for life. It has to have the right distance from the sun. If it's too close, you undergo a um, runaway greenhouse effect. If it's too far away, you go to what's called icebox Earth. But that's not a very good argument for the existence of God because given there's enough planets, and there's certainly a lot in our universe, our universe contains about 300 billion stars, about 300, uh, 300 billion galaxies, and about 300 billion stars per galaxy, and that's just what we can see. It's probably vastly larger than that. Given enough planets, randomly, you know, with different orbits, eventually one's going to have just the right orbits for life to occur. Right. So it's no surprise that life, and of course, any life that occurs is going to have to occur on a planet that can support it. So it's no surprise we find ourselves on such a planet. So by analogy, they use the same argument um, for the claim that there's multiple universes. They say the multiple universes will explain this. Now, we know there's many planets, but we don't know there's multiple universes, so that's very speculative. So they have to give a, a very speculative hypothesis that we cannot directly verify. Hmm. And, and you're convinced that the evidence does lead toward a designer. Um, right. So, so you gave us one evidence, one branch. Give us a, a couple more. Uh, a couple more. Uh, well, I should say something about the, the multiverse hypothesis. Oh, yes. Explain so, that, yeah. Some reasons to reject it. One reason is, um, at least in the commonly accepted versions, it's some physical process generates the multiverse. Usually it's a field of like inflationary cosmology and superstring theory, um, some combination of the two, which are all also very speculative. But that process itself, if you look into the proposed processes, they also need to be fine-tuned in order to generate many universes. An analogy I give is like a bread machine um, that produces a loaf of bread. I used to have one, and, and that's like a universe. Okay. And it has to be adjusted just right to even produce one loaf of bread, let alone many loaves of bread. So you, you don't get a, a multiverse generator for free, um, especially one that can produce a life-sustaining universe. So it, it largely kicks the problem of fine-tuning back one level. Um, and there's other severe problems. It's been, this has been well known. If you take the multiverse seriously, then it actually predicts that 
we should find ourselves are what's called Boltzmann brains, um, which are observers that just fluctuate into existence randomly, that are isolated and only exist for short amounts of time. And we don't find ourselves that um, to be such observers. So it, it, and that's been a problem they've been trying to solve. Um, with the multiverse hypothesis, but it does lead to that um, problem. And, there's, and it doesn't also account for the fine-tuning for discover, scientific discoveries, what I'm working on now. Interesting. Uh, in, in your work now that you're doing, did you find any um, uh, recent evidence in cosmology and in maybe, like you mentioned, quantum physics that um, give more rise or more strength for your thesis? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, I, I think what quantum physics shows us is I don't think you can really give a material, an ultimate materialistic foundation in terms of um, some microstructure for the order of physical reality. When you, when you get down into quantum physics, the explanations always end up turning out to be mathematical. You can't understand what's going on, like, for example, the Pauli exclusion principle, why there can't be more than two um, electrons per orbital, which is uh, essential for sol um, the existence of solid matter or and for chemical bonding. You can't understand that in terms of um, any kind of physical interaction. It's a math. Its explanations are always mathematical. In fact, we know that you can't. Um, we know that you can't understand the behavior of holes in terms of just the parts and their interaction because of Bell's theorem. So I think if you look into quantum mechanics, you get that really the ultimate explanation is mathematical. Um, but then the question comes up, if it's mathematics, what, what as Stephen Hawking once said in his book, um, on the, um, I forgot, I'm just blanking on the name of it, but it was a famous book he, he wrote. Um, what gives fire to the equations? You need something to give being to the equations. So this suddenly makes a lot of sense under Christian theism with logos. Everything was created and sustained through the logos of God, which is the reason or ordering. Um, the, the ordering in the mind, that goes back to Heraclitus, which is the ordering principle in the universe. Right. So the logos, the, the divine ideas, and I think the, the rules of quantum mechanics are sustained, are in the divine mind, and God gives being to the world um, in accordance with those rules of quantum mechanics. So it explains then why we have um, the kind of order we have in the world. And I don't think you can, um, I think this is the kind of um, unknown, unless people explore this issue, thing about science is that we're often, we're, um, the, in the textbooks and things, it's always portrayed we can explain these, the material order by this, simply by appealing to a, a deep level microscopic order, but they don't tell you that it's really mathematics. And that um, it's, it's really impossible to interpret quantum mechanics that way. Hmm. Um, okay. And so, you know, that's another way I, I think you see that um, it's, um, the, uh, that it points to theism, but it even points more to not just God created the universe, but sustains the universe, because there's no, the mathematics would have to be constantly um, 
active. So if, if I give an analogy, it's like in a virtual reality. If you have a virtual reality, if you want to explain what's going on, ultimately in the virtual reality, you would appeal to the computer program. Right. And the computer that gives being to it, so to speak. Now, in the virtual reality, it's not real, but in our case of our world, it's real, so God gives real being to it. But if you wanted to, if you unplug the computer, it all disappear. The computer has to continually sustain the reality. So in this case, if you don't have this underlying physical structure, mm -hmm. you need a continual sustaining of the reality by, by um, um, God. And hence, you move from a deistic conception which God just created the world and left, to really you need a theistic conception that okay. in theism God sustains the world and well, order. I, I know using Aristotle's model, he would be the grand mover, the first mover. Uh, this, um, But God did set up something to do that. These are all the laws or the constants um, in in the very laws in the, in the very universe, the very templates that, that make it this, these kinds of things even possible, like mathematical laws, physical laws, right? Right. And yes. those laws, I think, are just the mathematics that is yeah. the rules that okay. God's given. And those are rules. You can't just arbitrarily break them or make them or remove right. them, right? Right. Uh, yeah. Let's go to, um, let's move the argument further along. One of the, and you admitted this in your own work, that one of the strongest arguments against the hypothesis of the designer is the problem of evil. And you give an analysis or an example or um, an analogy of a garden with a, s a rattlesnake. Uh, right. Okay. Right. How do, how, so link that up for us with the problem of evil, being that God is so good, so great, there's a great designer, but there's so much evil in the world that we're such a small, infinitesimally small part of that universe. A part, um, why would he care? And if he does care, why does he make it so difficult for most of us that all of our lives are ultimately end, end in death and pain somehow or one way or another? Well, you have to you have to claim there's some um, good that's realized, and and um, instead of going into that analogy, which was really an analogy for defense, if I remember right, you first start with there's some good to be realized, and so we can glimpse if we can glimpse that good, you can combine the problem of evil with the um, fine tuning argument. You can combine the two together to get add to. Um, I think give a very strong argument the two together support theism strongly over atheism. So the way you do that is you um, recognize that it's not just God who created embodied conscious agents, God created highly vulnerable embodied conscious agents, highly vulnerable in the sense they're vulnerable to their environment and each other. And so if that's the case, evil is going to be practically inevitable in that universe. Okay. So, if you, so um, now you look at the probability of that. If you can glimpse a reason, just any, you know, just glimpse it. You don't have to buy into it. Just as far as it has some, even a very low plausibility, then it's not enormously improbable that such a reality would exist if God exists. Okay? Because you can see some reason why God would do it. But in order to have highly vulnerable embodied conscious agents, you have to have a physical universe with embodied conscious agents, and that requires extreme fine-tuning. So it's, that is extremely improbable, way, way more improbable under atheism. So the evidence still supports the theism over the atheism because it supports whatever hypothesis it's less improbable under. Bringing this to a personal level, though, Professor, um, 
you have an individual who's born in the slums, grows up in poverty, in prostitution, and, and, and squalor, finally diagnosed with incurable disease. You have these certain people on our in our world who are in these situations. Um, given the, the what you're talking about here, speak to the person who is going through a, a difficulty in their own life. At the same time, they want to reason out logically that, is this just a big cosmic joke? Am I just a blind accident among matter plus time plus chance? Or is there okay, some evidence telling me otherwise? Okay, so there, there's two strategies. One is uh, theodicy, and one um, which attempts to give a reason why God would allow evil, and one is a defense. So I have to go through both of them. I'll just sketch, I've you know, developed a theodicy that's now been published for um, quite a few years now in the Black Hole um, Companion and um, the problem of evil. Okay, hopefully we'll put a show notes a link to that. Uh, we'll do that. We'll go ahead. Okay, yeah. I also have a free print on my website. Oh, great. Okay, we'll point to that. If you search under called the Connection Building Theodicy, you can search under and you'll find it in Google. Okay. And so the basic idea behind this is the um, uh, that um, evil, like we have suffering, um, for instance, um, it allows us to have do a virtuous response to those evil, but then the virtuous responses in turn lead to um, these what I call eternal connections of appreciation, um, intimacy, and contribution. So if like somebody is suffering, let's say in wartime, and I am there with them and risk my own life, then there's I've contributed to them and there's an appreciation they have, they feel a strong connection to me. We, we find this in all the time. People, you know, somebody saved their life and they've lost contact, you don't know who it was, but they do a lot to search for that person. Okay. Um, so there's this connection that they've contributed in some way to the other person's life. And I claim those connections are an intrinsic good. So if they're good at all, they even have a, a small amount of good because they last forever. Um, it will always be the case. They let, they're ongoing in our memories, that connection with whoever we helped. Um, that good keeps building in enough to outweigh um, the evil that occurred. So now there's, you know, that's just a bare sketch of the theodicy. You really have to go and look at more. But I answer a lot of object. I consider a kind of a, do a fairly thorough job for the space allotted in considering objections to it. So, you know, that's one example. You can also combine that with free will and other theodicies. So all that all said, I think you can glimpse reasons um, why an all-good God would um, allow evil, um, and I think those reasons are actually these particular reasons are helpful in for those who suffer because you can see a point in it. Then the, on the other side, there's still going to be evils. I think that we're going to have a really hard time explaining, but that is what we would expect given God's mind is infinite. Um, we would expect to not be able to know all the reasons why. God does everything, just like a little child would know all the reasons the parent does what the parent does. So, But you, you would expect also to see some of the reasons, because God has given us the gift of reason, and God's revealed God's self, and I think that's the balance we actually do find in the world. So I, I think it is also important at the same time to um, show intellectual humility, to, recognize, to simply recognize the fact 
which is recognizing the truth about things, our minds are very finite, and so we cannot grasp all the reasons. And um, so to recognize there's going to be things beyond our kin that puzzle us, and to be able to accept that. Mm -hmm. and, and yet, we do have some reasons. So I think what you would expect under theism is to be able to see some reasons, but not all of them. And I think that's actually what we have. Okay, yeah, it would make sense if there is such a being who's like this. Uh, we would, of course, not be able to grasp the infinite uh, mind behind that. Um, so, in, in, to start wrapping this up, this being that you point to, and I know yours, your particular argument does avoids the God in the gap fallacy, which is actually pretty annoying, Professor. <laughs> I hear it so often, it's, it gets tiring answering it. But it is constantly raised in uh, scientific journals and as well as uh, even in the lay person in the Starbucks, that the God in the gaps fallacy is um, uh, thrown at people in your particular position who try to explain the, the complexity of nature and the anthropic principle of fine-tuning by positing a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, um, very intelligent, very powerful being. And it seems to me that the evidence you're presenting is not, a, is not one of that. Does it fall into that fallacy now, does it? Uh, no, and I also should say that the fallacy is largely a myth because they, it, it, they, they conflate the classical conception of God with, with Zeus, where Zeus was constantly intervening and you explain things by Zeus or some other of the gods, right, by right. types to what they do. Within um, the whole classical theistic position, go back to Augustine, they didn't do that. They, they thought that God laid down natural laws and the natural order was the way you would explain things. Look at Aquinas. So, first of all, it's largely just a myth. There's one case you have with Newton appealing to a kind of um, gap, but they have this image of that's what theists have been doing for all these, um, you know, for centuries, which is a completely false image. It, it, it's they're conflating theism with a sort of polytheistic, you know, maybe Roman or Greek conception of the gods. Right. Um, so that, that's one That's one big issue that should just be pointed out. It's like the whole objection that they raise is based on uh, a myth about what theists actually did. Second, this is to commit God of the gaps because a good analogy of that is um, the, the gaps is when you try to explain something in the natural order, like um, how the natural order works by appealing to God's intervention. So, like, if you have a clock, um, if you have if your beings that existed, that's a routine beings that exist, uh, you know, an old-style clock with gears and things like that. Right. Science would be about, science for those beings would be about explaining what their, the underlying gears and springs were that were responsible for the hands moving, and let's say the alarm going off. But the science there could not explain why there is a clock at all, and why the gears and things have the structure they do, so if I have, why the alarm goes off, right? There you would have to appeal to purpose. So the, the um, case is that, you know, somebody had a purpose, they want to wake up, and they want to tell the time it is, and that's why they constructed the, um, the clock. And the universe is like that. Um, the science can explain how the universe works, okay? That's the role of science, so you shouldn't be invoking, you know, God to explain why, let's say, you know, an earthquake occurred, or a certain, you know, um, a disease occurred, or something like that. 
typically you shouldn't invoke God, you should invoke the natural order of things. But when you come to the whole universe itself, that's like the whole clock. Right. And in that case, you need to appeal to something outside the universe. That is just by science's own nature beyond its kin. That's a metaphysical question, not a scientific question. Okay. All right. So that's, and even the best scientist has to admit that. Okay. Right. Let's, uh, let's conclude with one final question. So your research, your hypothesis, all your work um, and your grants has been pointing to the fact that there is some a designer, as I mentioned earlier, an immaterial, spaceless, timeless uh, being who created the universe was immensely intelligent and powerful. And the final question I have for you is this. What's your conviction that this being is actually good? He's looking out for your best interest or our best interest. Yeah, so I think, um, just in terms of the context of fine-tuning, I think actually the, um, the fine-tuning argument only supports a perfectly good being, and here's why. Yes. It doesn't just support any old designer. Right. And the reason it, um, the being needs to be perfectly good is the desires of the being have to be non-arbitrary. Um, like if I, I, otherwise I could explain anything by appealing to a designer. For example, if I toss a coin, you know, 50 times in a row, whatever sequence it comes up, I could just simply say, oh, you know, some um, intelligent, it's really improbable, some intelligent being wanted to come just up, just that sequence. But then I've just transferred the improbability up one level. Why did the intelligent being want that highly complex sequence versus all the others? So um, I, I'm just subscribing an arbitrary desire to that being. Now, ultimately, the only non-arbitrary non desire a being could have, an uh, ultimate being, now we, our desires could maybe be explained by our need to survive in a physical world, evolution, you know, we have to reproduce, sexual desires, all that, but for a being that ha is not in a physical world, not vulnerable, etc., you can't explain, um, you can't account for its desires that way. So the only non-arbitrary desire seems to be to do the good because it's been recognized all the way back to Plato that the good itself, to recognize something is good, is self-motivating. So if you recognize it as good, you'll have a desire to do it. The reason people don't do good is either they don't recognize it as good or they have a contrary desire. There's something constraining them. Like, so you recognize it's not good to, to um, um, it's a bad thing to kill somebody, but you have the desire, you know, to get rid of them, to get their money or something else. There's a contrary desire. Um, in the case of God, um, if you have an unrestricted being, so if you have a restriction, then there needs to be a fine-tuning, something, a set of laws that restrict the being. So if it's going to be the ultimate explanation of all the laws itself, it can't be restricted in any way. So the being is unrestricted, and so it doesn't have contrary desires. So the only non-arbitrary desire such a being could have is to do the good. And once you have the being as good, of course, if it's all powerful, then it's going to be perfectly good. Because that's the only non-arbitrary level of goodness, and it can always make itself better, even if it started off not perfectly good. So I think then you get you end up getting a perfectly good being. <laughs> wow, that's okay. So I mean, it's a non—it's the non-arbitrary. only non-arbitrary desire because the key idea is good. To understand what is good has motivates 
agent to do it. Otherwise, you either haven't understood it, or it's a contrary. You have a contrary desire. You ultimately land on the position as a Christian that this being is Jesus of Nazareth. Now, how do you go to Jesus of Nazareth? There, you have to get. Well, yeah, I, I imagine that will. That's a whole building a different structure, a different but set I of think arguments. Actually, but actually, that there is an argument. I think strongly persuasive is uh, God is perfectly good. If God is perfectly good. Then you would the way you would expect on the deep level the universe to be arranged to, to realize value because that's what motivates God, right? If God's perfectly good, that's a not only non-arbitrary motivation, and then you would think it would be um, organized to realize the greatest value within the system. And I think the, the so the, the greater the story in terms of the goodness of the story. Um, the more likely it's true, and I think the greatest story is God comes down and shares in our suffering, and and redeems us that way, and that's the Christian story. So I think you can, on just prior grounds, it's very plausible. Okay, and that's my story as well. Well, okay, this is some good stuff. A lot to think about, Professor. I do wish you God's best and God's speed okay. in your in your continued work. Um, uh, again, thank you for taking the time to do this. Okay, okay, bye. Okay, blessings to you.